I want to ask the question, why is it important to know church history? What is the significance in our lives today? Turn to the book of Jude, if you would, toward the end of your Bibles, second to last book. It's just one chapter, so watch it, because you'll pass right over it. And the book of Jude was by and large dedicated to pointing out false teachers. And so let's see that from verse 4. Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 10. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed." Jude's purpose was to point out these false teachers. He does that in verse 4, in 8, in 10, in 16, 18, and 19. And what's interesting is that one of Jude's strategies to do this is to refer to church history. Or not church history, but to refer to history. Look at verse 5. He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in under Undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Here he references these events of history and showing the Lord saving, yes, saving some out of Egypt, but also punishing others who were disobedient. Not only at the human level in verse 5, but at the angelic level in verse 6. And so what's, what's Jude's point here? He references Sodom and Gomorrah, the example of God's judgment. And why is he doing that? Well, look at verse 8. He says, Yet in the same way, in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority. Why did Jude refer to history? So that we might recognize in this day and age, the same type of errors and that they would recognize in that day the same type of errors that had already repeated themselves in history. Jude wanted to point out these as an example so that we would learn from history. He does this again. Look at verse 9. He says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. And catch this in verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in rebellion, in the rebellion of Korah. And then here's the key. Look at verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water. Jude uses the example of these heirs to demonstrate to the people that he's writing to that in the same way there were men among them doing the exact same things. In just a few verses, he's made reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's made reference to the life of Cain, the heir of Balaam, the rebellion of Korah. And what's interesting is that Jude, 
He assumes a knowledge of this. He doesn't explain each of those. Did you notice that? He references it and he draws the implication for our lives today and for their lives in that day. And I think the implication for us is this, is that God ordains history so that we can learn from it. God ordains history so that we can learn from it. Listen to John Piper's comment on this. He says, is it not clear then that God ordains that events happen and that they get recorded as history so that we will learn from them and become wiser and more insightful about the present for the sake of Christ and his church? Never stop learning history. Gain some knowledge every day and let us give our children one of the best protections against the folly of the future, namely a knowledge of the past. And so he used history to point out error. But I believe that another important element of church history is to see God's faithfulness displayed through the ages. You remember Matthew 16 from two weeks ago. Uh, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And we looked at what he was meaning there. But the, the implication of that is that Jesus made a promise. He promised to begin and to build a church. And church history is really the testimony of God's faithfulness to carry out that promise. Last week, Deontay taught, and he taught well on the beginning of the church, the inauguration of the church in Acts 2, uh, where the Holy Spirit invaded both uh, Gentiles and Israelites alike, assembling this body called the church, and he would permanently indwell them. Now, if we were to track the progress of the building of the church through the book of Acts, we see the apostle Peter and then the apostle Paul being used greatly by God. And they're ministering around and Christianity is blossoming. All throughout the book of Acts, it says, many were added to their number that day. Thousands were being saved. Churches were popping up all over the place. And so tonight, as I get to the end of the book of Acts and really the end of the Bible, I ask the question that I want to hopefully answer tonight, what happened next? What came after Acts? What came after the New Testament? And while this will be a bit of a history lesson, I hope that it's much, much more than that. I really hope that that the heritage of the faith that we also, that we hold so near and dear, that we see uh, the value and the faithfulness of God in knowing church history and seeing him work through that time. Beyond that, I think that what we'll see is the story of man's sinfulness and God's faithfulness through the last 2,000 years. And so let's pray as we begin. Father, we do want to approach your word uh, with reverence and care, and particularly as we look at church history, God, I ask that um, you would focus our minds, Lord, keep us alert paying attention, uh, Lord, that we would see through history that you have been at work and continue to be at work today. Father, guide us as we do this together, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin learning from church history. The first section I want to look at is the church fathers, and your handout might be helpful to kind of follow along. We're going to be going through hundreds of years at a time. Uh, The church fathers, though, is the first section that we'll look at. And again, the question that comes to mind is, what happened next? What happened after Revelation? John, the apostle, was the only apostle not to be martyred, but he was dipped in hot oil. He was banished to the island of Patmos, and uh, he continued to minister. He ministered to the church in Ephesus, and he ended his life, really, uh, by writing the book of Revelation. Now, when John finished the book of Revelation, it was the perfect bookend to Scripture, It took us from the future to eternity, 
really matching Genesis, which took us from eternity to the present time. Uh, And so John, when John died and that last book was written, the canon was closed and we enter into a new era of time. John's disciple, one of John's disciples, was named Polycarp. And Polycarp ministered around 100 A.D., about the time John died, around 100 A.D. Polycarp was significant for church history in that he validated the New Testament in many ways. Uh, He wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, just like uh, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, but he didn't claim apostolic authority. He didn't claim that it was revelation from God. Instead, he quoted Paul as revelation from God. He quoted Peter, and he quoted the Old Testament. And so even in the first century, one generation after the apostles, the, the apostles' disciples were recognizing there was a uniqueness surrounding that time. Ephesians 2.20 says that uh, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. And when the apostles and Jesus uh, passed off the scene, that unique time period, and the scripture was completed, there was no need for direct revelation anymore. And it's interesting that one generation, not even a generation, one set of disciples after the apostles already recognized that. Looking back, we know that then Scripture is complete. That's a huge uh, encouragement to me to know, man, these 66 books, these are it. There was a unique time when God spoke through people, and now we've got his living and active word for us today. Similarly, uh, a contemporary to Polycarp was a guy by the name of Clement. He was also instrumental during this period, around 88 to 99 AD. He was the pastor in the church at Rome, And he also would write a lot. And in these writings, he would interchangeably quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which was brand new at that time, quoting from the Apostle Paul as Scripture. It's neat to look back and see that these two men faithfully taught God's Word 10 years after Revelation was written. Not even 10 years. Maybe even while it was being written, they were already recognizing that, wow, the Apostle Paul, God is speaking through him in a in a unique way. The Spirit was guiding Paul's very words that he was recording. That's the positive aspect. Unfortunately, leaving, not even leaving the first century, error already begins to creep into the church. Uh, Ignatius was one of the more influential disciples of the Apostle John during this time, and it was primarily because he was martyred for his faith. But some of his ideologies would prove to be truly devastating in later years in the church. During the first century, it was well known there was a form of false teaching called Gnosticism. Many of you have heard of this before. Uh, And it was prevalent even during the time of the apostles. Gnosticism was a type of heresy that really came to fruition in the second century, but its beginnings were there in the first century. And basically, the Gnostics believed this. They believed that the spiritual world was good, but the material world was bad. All matter was evil. And as such, they believed that Jesus was a form of deity, but they denied his humanity. They said, well, if he was God, he couldn't have truly possessed a body because all material flesh is bad. So they thought Jesus was some form of projection or an emanation, uh, but not truly in a body. In the letter of Colossians that we studied last semester, uh, there's really signs from Paul's writing that perhaps this heresy was beginning to bloom in the church in Colossae. But by the time John was nearing the end of his life, 
this heresy would be off the ground and running. Flip to your left, if you're in Jude, go to 1 John chapter 1. By the time John was ministering, this, this heresy had taken root. And look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. John starts off with a bang. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who is the word of life? Jesus. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us which we have seen and heard and we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Guys, this is an all-out defense against Gnosticism, against this denying of the humanity of Jesus. John wanted to defend this, and so he says, guys, we saw him. We touched him. I heard him. And if you remember around the round table, uh, toward the end of Jesus' life, John is laying his head back on Jesus' chest. The humanity of Jesus was crucial for these reasons. Number one, if you have no humanity, you have no substitutionary atonement, right? You've got to have a human in order for it to be substitutionary. Number two, we've got to have a human high priest who can identify with our weaknesses. If he wasn't human, we have no uh, high priest advocating for us and being able to forgive us. And so John uh, really labors to defend this. And the reason I want to give this background, all this background is for this. This man, Ignatius, uh, while he was a faithful saint at times, in, in order to keep the unity of doctrine because of this heresy, in order to keep the unity of doctrine and to defend against other heresies, he had the idea that a head pastor would be important among a group of churches. Up to this point, the first century was operating with a plurality of leaders in the form of elders and deacons, like Paul had described in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, but what's interesting is that they didn't all have Scripture I mean, there was no printing press, right? So they maybe had bits and pieces. And so it's not a terrible thought to have a head pastor that could really centralize the teaching of a bunch of churches. And so Ignatius called them to submit to this head pastor. Well, as the Roman Empire would expand and continue and the church would grow, uh, this office of the centralized head pastor would develop more and more, as we'll see here in a moment. Now, moving five, uh, 50 to 100 years uh, later into the second century, now we've got all sorts of heresies already popping up, primarily Gnosticism, but cousins of Gnosticism as well. And in order to solidify the church's convictions against Gnosticism, the next man to influence the direction of the church was Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, and he was a great missionary. He had a heart for missions. Uh, in fact, it's thought that he was the first missionary to the country of France, which is really neat. Uh, he did several things good for the church and, unfortunately, several things that were not super helpful for the start of the church. On the good side, he wrote a lot, and in his writings, he again was quoting New Testament scripture, thereby affirming it, recognizing, wow, this was a unique time period. I'm not... Uh, revelatory in my writing, but Paul was, and so was Peter. Secondly, he drew a lot of great connections between the Old and New Testament, making the case that the New Testament was equally important to the Old Testament that the Jews had held so near and dear. 
As mentioned earlier, he was passionate about missions, and so he would train up missionaries and send them out all over the world. It's without without any doubt that God used Irenaeus greatly to further the kingdom of, of Christianity, to further God's kingdom. He considered the person of Jesus as the core of theology. He was the center of man's redemption from the sin corruption that had entered through Adam. And to this, I say amen. This is a biblical thought. In fact, turn to the left, to the Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and look at verse 12. <clears throat> Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now look down at 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so we see... This was a very biblical thought. Just as through Adam, death spread to all, through Christ, life spread to all. (coughs) Like Ignatius, Irenaeus was also passionate about defending the church from Gnosticism. He wanted to uh, emphasize the humanity of Jesus, but his solution was devastating. The first area of error that Irenaeus introduced was in his attempt to counter the Gnostic notion of denying the humanity of Christ, he emphasized the real presence of Jesus in the bread and in the wine. Uh, And this was damaging because then people turned to work salvation. It was a work of ingesting that in order to receive God's grace. As previously stated, this was a terrible heresy because we need the substitutionary atonement. We need a high priestly human uh, savior. In other words, in order for humanity to be saved, we need a human savior. But his solution swung too far. He wanted to emphasize the humanity humanity of Jesus that he said he's present in the wine and in the bread. A misinterpretation of John chapter 6. Further, he would speak of baptism in ways that opened the door for one to believe that baptism would give forgiveness. As he contemplated and contrasted Adam and Christ, perhaps in light of this humanity issue, he gave a a real special and unique place to Mary and titled her the New Eve. This, of course, led to reverence toward Mary, uh, which would be developed as well later in church history. So in summary of this time period, while the apostolic fathers were helpful, they also began to get us off track sometimes from the biblical model. Moving now to the 300s, though, we enter into this Roman Christian empire. This was a neat time. Uh, It started, though, kind of, I guess, challenging. Uh, The emperor of the Roman Empire was Diocletian in 284 AD, and Diocletian had it out for Christians in the worst kind of way. For the first 18 years of his reign, there was no persecution. In fact, his wife and his daughters were Christian. But in the last two years of his reign, he went all out in persecuting believers. He was killing believers ruthlessly. He was killing bishops. He let the imperial army loose on Christians uh, to persecute them as they wished. And as I just stop and reflect here, we know from Scripture that believers will be persecuted. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. If they, per- if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Yet can you imagine Can you imagine how hard it would have been to live during this time? The emperor, the head authority of the government is killing Christians. I read somewhere that uh, one of his right-hand men was the one carrying out this judgment. He was going around and seeing to it that they were being killed. 
And he commented that many, many Christians went to the stake willingly and that that testimony had a great impact on people who were watching. Uh, in, in fact, um, <clears throat> their bloodshed and heroic faith would impact the future of the Roman Empire, even. One man in authority in Britain was named Const, uh, Constantius Chlorus, and here he began to actually show favor to Christians against the emperor's will. Well, the son of Constantius was Constantine, and soon Constantine would find himself in a position of power and eventually the emperor. Perhaps you've heard of Constantine. He was appointed emperor in 312 AD, and from that time forward, there was a huge shift in the Roman emperor, empire. No longer were Christians being persecuted, but now they were being favored. He was a Christian and favoring other Christians. Taxes on Christian ministers and churches were removed. Gladiator games were done away with. Crucifixion was abolished. And instead, magnificent church buildings were being built. It was a time of apparent prosperity for the kingdom of God. In his personal life, Constantine was said to have brought up his family in the Christian church and raised them with Christian morals. And from this point forward, the world would really never be the same. To try to summarize a lot of events in history, Constantine would create a new capital in the east uh, to defend the empire better. In the west, you had Rome, and now in the east, you had Constantinople, named after himself. Uh, Constantinople would be the capital of the east, and just as a side note, uh, 1,600 years from that point, it would actually get taken over by the Islam, uh, by the Muslims. It's kind of modern-day Turkey, and would go on to be named Istanbul. And so Istanbul was the original Constantinople. But with this time of intense persecution behind, the Roman Empire now kind of took a shift to being called the Roman Christian Empire. And in one sense, it was great that there was no longer persecution. Believers weren't getting killed. Uh, he was favoring Christians, right? Hopefully the gospel is being spread. But instead, and, and some of that was true, but really what began to happen was people were now entering into the church to gain political power. They were uh, entering the church to gain favor with the government. And so what the result was was that basically you began to have a gutted and empty church. This is sad to look back on because I'm sure Constantine's heart was good. He wanted to see the gospel proclaimed, so he was favoring the church. He, he didn't want per persecution to be happening anymore, and yet the result was that the Christian nation was shallow and gutted. Well, making matters worse, the guy that followed up Constantine was Theodosius, and Theodosius took it a step farther and said, oh, by the way, it's an imperial mandate for you to be a Christian. You must be a Christian or you will die. Uh, it is somewhat funny, except uh, in one instance, uh, he entered a chariot racing arena and had his men surround the arena, and it was a pagan practice at that time, and uh, no one would believe in Christ, and so he had them all murdered. 7,000 people within three hours murdered. Uh, a real stain on church history in a sense. Although he later repented, the, the high priest Ambrose called him out on it and asked him to repent over and over and over, and he did repent. It was still a mark that, that wasn't really going to be undone. Well, at the beginning of this history overview, I mentioned that there were also very faithful guys along the way. And one of these guys was Augustine. Maybe you've heard of Augustine. Augustine ministered near the end of the 300s, 
and going into the 400s. And his conversion in and of itself is really an incredible story. He was a well-educated guy. He had a PhD. Uh, He was also enslaved to sexual temptations. He had a series of love affairs with women. It really seemed that he had it all. Education, women, money, status. And yet there was an emptiness. Now he decided to attend Ambrose's Uh, Ambrose was the pastor at the time. He attended this church where Ambrose was preaching because he just wanted to study his preaching style. He wanted to study how he spoke, his oratory skills. And yet while sitting under the word of God and as Ambrose preached the scriptures, Augustine's heart was gripped. He saw that Christianity was both eloquent and intelligent. And in fact, his final tipping point was this. He got to Romans chapter 13 and he saw verse 13 and it cut him to the quick. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. This led to his conversion. And following his conversion, his new, with his new Christian life, he headed south to North Africa. Now, as he was headed down there, his mom and his son both died. Right? There's no modern medicine at this time. Traveling would be difficult. His mom and his son died. And the result of this was that he even further left his old life behind and pursued his new life in Christ. He was dedicated to the Lord's service at that point. As he reached North Africa, within three years, he was appointed as the pastor of the church down there and eventually the head bishop over the area. He would minister in the same church for 33 years until his death in 430 AD. Now, Augustine's mark on the church was a a very positive one. He made important advancements in the church's understanding of theology Uh, although his doctrine of the church was a little bit off because really everyone's was off at that time, his doctrine of sin and grace was spot on. Contrary to the direction that the church as a whole was headed, Augustine himself had a sense, a good sense of the depth of his own sin, a biblical thought. He, He understood that there was no work that he could do to merit salvation. And he understood that Salvation was entirely a gift of God's grace. Further, he knew that it it required God's grace to keep him in the faith. In other words, the perseverance of the saints. He knew that it was God who had to continue this sort of faith in him because if left to himself, he would stray. He believed that Adam's sin had infiltrated all of mankind, right? We saw that in Romans 5. And he made much of the work of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. What wonderful truths, right? I mean, think about it. This was 400 AD, and we've got a faithful man who's teaching the scriptures with accuracy. As he aged, though, it was interesting that his ministry would come at a unique time. He was 56 years old when he first heard about the fall of the Roman Empire. And this caused panic. People were panicking. They had put all of their faith in the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome. And so, What did Augustine do? He began to speak of the heavenly city. He pointed people's affections or attentions and affections to the new Jerusalem, to their hope in heaven rather than in Rome, heaven on earth, as a lot of people would have seen it. Well, he would spend the rest of his life ministering, deciphering between church and state, emphasizing the importance of one, setting their eyes on the heavenly city. 
At the time of his death, around in the 400 to 500 AD range, the Catholic or the universal, is what that word means, the Catholic Christian church was now the Roman Catholic church. It had earned this title during the Roman Christian Empire when Christianity was the mandated religion. And in addition, the papacy or the office of the Pope had been fully accepted and now was an official title. And really the first guy to begin to make a case for this was Pope Leo I. He attempted to make a biblical case using Matthew 16 uh, in the conversation with Peter where he said, upon this rock I will build my church. We studied that two weeks ago and I believe came to the conclusion that that's not an accurate interpretation of that text. But nonetheless, Pope Leo I was uh, seeking to justify his position as Pope and he took this verse to be referring to Peter and then a line of succession after Peter for the head of the church. Uh, through the first few centuries, there had been a, times of having a pope in the east in Constantinople, a pope in the west, but now for a little bit, there was one pope as head over the entire church. And while I, I look back at this and it's kind of a bummer in a sense uh, because of the damage that the pope had done, has, has done through church history, Along the way, there was a lot of encouragement too. There were true believers uh, who would stand up for what was true of the scriptures, both within and without of the Roman Catholic Church. And really their faithfulness is seen by the large amount of rejection that came when Pope Leo began to make the case for uh, the primacy. And the rejection was made on three bases. And this is what the people were saying. Number one, the Gospels make it clear that followers of Christ are not to follow the pattern of princes of the world who exercise lordship and authority. Instead, Christ followers lead by humble service. Number two, Peter was notoriously unstable. Uh, within the same chapter that Jesus says that he will build his church, he also rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Furthermore, after Christ's resurrection and ascension, Paul calls out Peter for being double-minded in the book of Galatians. This makes him a seemingly unlikely candidate to center the church on. And thirdly, the theory given by Leo and the Catholic Church assumes that authority from Jesus was given to an office, whereas even if you do interpret that text to be about Peter, there's no indication of an office, it's about a person. And I might just add my own fourth, and it was that while Peter was effective for the gospel, as you look at the New Testament, one could argue that John and Paul were just as effective, if not more effective, in the furtherance of the gospel. I would have thought that if there was to be a pope, it would be Paul uh, or John even. To add to that, Jesus never mentions Rome as being the center hub of anything. You, if there was going to be a center hub, you would think it would be Jerusalem, right? And so, <clears throat> all of that to say, that's encouraging, Right? Even through the time as heirs came into the church, infiltrated the church, there were faithful people standing up for what was true all the while. And really, as we enter the Middle Ages, though, this position of the papacy was being further solidified. And so entering now into the Middle Ages, uh, the catalyst to the Middle Ages was the fall of the Roman Christian Empire. And the Middle Ages is typically from 500 it's thought of as 500 to 1500 A.D. Uh, it's called the Middle or Medieval Times, often called the Dark Ages. Uh, and it really at the start of the 6th century, 500 A.D., the Middle Ages would begin by a divisive separation of East and West. Essentially, the control of the East was lost. The East was located, again, out of Constantinople, and Justinian was the leader. 
Now, the reason for the separation were doctrinal understandings, minor doctrinal or, or practices within the church. And what was interesting is that the East Branch would go on to be called the Greek Orthodox Church, and the West Branch would go on to be called the Roman Catholic Church. Orthodox just means correct, Catholic means universal, so the Roman universal, the Greek correct church, you could kind of switch the names and say Roman Orthodox and Greek Catholic if you wanted. But nonetheless, that's where these two uh, religions centered from. Now soon the East would be infiltrated by barbarians and Muslims, and so the East kind of collapsed. In the meantime, uh, a, a prince from Russia came down and visited and adopted their religion and took it back to Russia. And although we don't really have a lot of Greek Orthodox around here, through church history, it's been a huge church, and it's still very influential in Russia. If you go to Russia today, there are, are Greek Orthodox churches everywhere, and that was because of this prince. And he took it back to Russia, and they kind of set up their central hub in Moscow. And so that kind of became the third Rome, if you will. There was Rome, Constantinople, and then up in Russia. Returning, though, to the Middle Ages as a whole, the Middle Ages are, are really distinguished by a few distinctives. And first, uh, Gregory the Great, a pope in 590 AD, further organized the papal system and standardized the liturgy of the churches. The church was the governing authority in the land, and at this time, the church had jurisdiction and rule over parts of what is now known as Europe. And in fact, because of the collapse of the East, Europe kind of became its own uh, uh, unit. They kind of gained their own identity at this time under the rule of the church. So the Roman Catholic Church ruled throughout much of Europe, and the church was institutionalized. In other words, it was made the same all throughout. It, believed, it operated in the same way, believed the same things, so on and so forth. Uh, failure to comply with the church's way of life, though, resulted in persecution, exile, at times even death. Now, during this time, many men stood up to uh, to proclaim what they believed the word of God to say, and for opposing it, they were persecuted. They were killed. And as I look at back at this and I interject my own thoughts, I want you to flip over to Mark, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 7. And I think this passage well categorizes uh, what had developed within the church and what is perhaps true today. In Mark chapter 7, start in verse 6, Jesus speaking, it says, He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the, tradi to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. And then in verse 13, he summarizes this whole section and he says that by their holding to these traditions, they had thus invalidated the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. This unfortunately summarizes a lot of what was going on in the church then and a lot of what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church today, holding to tradition and the doctrines of man as the word of God, the doctrines of men over the word of God. And Pope Gregory was kind of the one that instituted this. He organized it and standardized it. Another major turning point, though, in the Middle Ages was the rise of Islam, Islam centers on Muhammad and began around 620 AD, and Muhammad quickly gained a following. 
And because of the fall of the Roman Empire in the east, the armies were all weak, and Islam quickly infiltrated, right? Modern-day Turkey makes sense. Uh, and this really let, set the stage for the third distinctive of the Middle Ages, which were the Crusades. Uh, during this time, Pope Urban II was the Pope, and the Turks were, or the, sorry, the Muslims had infiltrated Turkey and a lot of that area. And so to take back over the Christian cities and countries, Pope Urban II issued a call to deliver the holy places of Palestine from the Muslim hands. So you've got from 1095 AD to 1291 AD, waves of Christian warriors setting out to accomplish this goal with bloodshed. This is perhaps why this age is referred to as the Dark Ages. Uh, There was a lot of darkness. There was a lot of lifeless, godless action going on, not just in the world, but from the church itself. And it's hard to know, you know, who was regenerate, who wasn't. We don't know if there were men in those armies who refused to kill because uh, they didn't feel it was biblical. I'm going to assume the best in that, and I know there were other sects or sections of the church going on at this time. Uh, but this was a dark time. That's why it's referred to as the Dark Ages. And yet, in the midst of the darkness, there was also a lot of good things going on. A few men began to work in the area of scholastic theology. And these men believed that faith and reason were not enemies, but were instead allies. One of these men was named Anselm, who lived around 1100 AD. And Anselm said this, He said his goal was not to attain faith through reason, but rather to use reason to better understand what he already believed. He was quoted saying, I believe, therefore I understand. And as you can imagine, his work during this time was foundational. It was huge for apologetics, for defending the faith against all these false religions and heresies that were coming in. Anselm defended doctrines and gave reason-based proofs for things like the existence of God, Things like the attributes of God, the incarnation of God's Son, the atonement of Christ fully satisfying God. Wonderful truths that he defended, both with philosophical and logical arguments. Again, not to arrive at faith because of reason, but to use reason to support what he already believed. Thomas Aquinas was a contemporary and also made great strides in this area. Now, I've mentioned this, but while it was true that the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages was the predominant predominant church, uh, not all who were in the church were truly Roman Catholic. And what I mean is, not all were believing the things that the Roman Catholic Church had taught. uh, Works salvation, transubstantiation, uh, so on and so forth. In fact, as the Middle Ages would continue... The Roman Catholic Church was facing really significant issues. Bishops and priests were living in immorality. Politics was influencing the operations of the church. The legitimacy of the position of the Pope was being questioned from within and from without. Uh, So they were really under fire. And although the church was in control, uh, one man quoted it saying, uh, the church gained the world but lost its soul. It was a power-hungry beast and was losing its influence. And this really set the stage for the the power of the Word of God to shine through brightly. At the beginning of the time that was known as the Reformation, the church would be reformed in radical ways. Uh, Another Christian man stood up and set forth his belief in the sufficiency of Scripture to answer uh, the questions of how to do church. And this man was named John Wycliffe. 
You may have heard of his name today because there's organizations, there's several organizations that have to do with translating, even today, that are named after him. Wycliffe lived during the 14th century, and he held a firm conviction that the Bible was the final authority for the believer and that every believer should have the opportunity to read it. At the time, the Catholic Church only allowed Latin Bibles to be read and heard in church, but the problem was not everyone spoke Latin. Furthermore, the church had banned the possession of the Bible. Listen to the decree of the Council of Toulouse in 1229 from the church. It says this, We prohibit also that laity, or common people, should be, com- should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament, but we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. Wycliffe's fame, therefore, came from his translation of the Bible from Latin into English and distributing it into into the hands of the people. Further, he wrote tracts arguing that that Christ was the head of the church, not the Pope, that priests were unnecessary, that the Catholic belief that the bread and wine turned into into Christ's body and blood was wrong, and all of these he derived from Scripture. Wycliffe's translating work and commitment to Scripture as the authority would pave the way for men like John Huss, who we considered a few weeks ago, William Tyndale, who would finish his work of translating, and perhaps more well-known, Martin Luther. Wycliffe died in 1384 A.D., and Martin Luther was born in 1483 A.D., just about 100 years later. And while they missed each other by 100 years, Wycliffe's impact on Martin Luther would be one that would rock the ages. Uh, now, as we really enter into the age of the, the Reformation, we're going to look at Martin Luther for a moment. Martin Luther was a monk, a practicing monk, and a well-educated one at that. He earned a PhD from the University of Wittenberg, and he was a professor of the Bible. And yet, while being a professor of the Bible, he had an immense internal struggle over God's holiness and justice. And just to interject here for a moment... I've got to believe that this wrestle over God's holiness and justice came from his conviction of the works righteousness that the church was teaching. I'm just certain that he was seeing there's nothing man can do to appease a holy and righteous God. God is is completely holy. How could I do something to, to attain that? And in fact, it was while reading Romans that he realized that justification was not by works, but through faith. And friends, these these convictions that were welling up within Martin Luther would lead to the Reformation. In October uh, 31st of 1517, Luther posted the 95 Thesis for debate on uh, on the castle church door at Wittenberg. In it, he argued against the indulgences and against the Pope's authority. See, Luther was different from the traditional Catholicism of the time. He rejected transubstantiation. He, held the, he firmly held that justification came by faith alone, not by works, and that works played no role in salvation. You're in Romans, or actually we're in Mark, but flip over to Romans uh, chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And I just want to read chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 5 to affirm Luther's convictions. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul goes on here to use David as a great example. 
And when I think about the fact that this was the book that gripped Luther's life, it's very likely that these verses were just rattling around inside of his head. Not by works. It's got to be by faith. But what am I seeing here? There's a disconnect. And so Luther's firm stance would make a mark on the church that would last until today, really. Uh, the revolt against the Catholic Church was becoming more and more widespread. Threats were being uh, given against Luther's life, but he, so he fled, and as time went, it, they kind of settled. He returned to Wittenberg. He married, had kids. He was a pastor. He wrote a few hymns that we're familiar with, A Way in a Manger and A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote a lot of wonderful works, uh, commentaries, etc., And following Luther's influence, his bold stance, things only got better from a doctrinal and biblical standpoint. Men like Zwingli, a contemporary of Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, would continue to spread the newfound life in the gospel and continue to reform the beliefs and practices of the church. The whole, a lot of the Middle Ages was marked by just deadness, dead orthodoxy within the church. And yet now men were reading the Bible. They were interpreting it on their own. And the result was that guys were getting born again. Lots of people were being saved. And really what you have is the start of Protestantism. You had guys like John Wesley, who his followers would uh, go on to start the Methodist movement. Luther's followers would start the Lutheran church against his will, but they would start it. Nonetheless, Calvin's followers would start the Reformed, the Dutch Reformed, Presbyterian movements. In addition, there were the Quakers, there were the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists believed that baptism, as as a precursor to baptism, conversion was necessary. Amen. Uh, And so there was a lot of good things going on. And as as we look at the Reformation from a bird's eye view, it really represents a neat aspect of church history as a whole. And it is this. Doctrinal errors force the church to take a stance. They force the church to take a stance and to return to the Scriptures. Whether there's heresies regarding which books of the Bible, heresies regarding the person of Jesus, heresies regarding the Trinity, These heresies force the church to return to Scripture. They force the church to reform and to take a biblical stance. And at times, men have arisen in church history who have taken these these faithful stances. Other times, heresies would take root. They would infiltrate. They'd influence the church. They'd turn her away, turn her off track. Uh, and so I think what we see is that heresy, heresies were not just a curse. They were a curse and a blessing. Yes, they corrupted the church through the ages, but they also led to reform that purified the church in a wonderful way, that gave life to the church in a refreshing way. And so as the church headed into the 1600s, a new group coming out of the Reformation sought to carry out what they had discovered in the Bible in a new land. And this new group was called the Puritans, and their land was called America. The Pilgrims and the Puritans both set sail for America because of religious convictions and disagreements with the church in Europe. The Pilgrims sought to break with the church in England, while the Puritans just sought to reform from the church in England in the new settled New England. Uh, Honing in on the Puritans, they believed that they were the people of God, venturing to the land given by God with the word of God to do the missionary work of God. And at the core, the difference between the Puritans and the church in England was the belief, and catch this, this is important, was the belief that spiritual conversion was necessary to be a part of the true church. 
They emphasized the conversion of the individual, not just religious practice. Further, they emphasized personal reading of the Bible. They wanted everyone to have a Bible and to be in it themselves. Their resolve was to turn to Scripture. And this is a legacy that still carries on today. Men of this time were men like Matthew Henry, Samuel Rutherford. And yet elsewhere in the world, about the same time, as given by the title, there was good things, God's faithfulness and growing the church and man's sinfulness. In Europe, the Enlightenment was happening. We're around the 1700s. And the Enlightenment basically introduced a new way of thinking that elevated reason and individualism rather than tradition. So as an attempt to create unity in the church, many Enlightenment thinkers began to stray from the historic beliefs in the Bible. While they still believed parts of the Bible, and they held a general belief in God, kind of a deism form of belief, they didn't believe in the miraculous aspects of Jesus, and so they would throw them out. Like, for example, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Jefferson was influenced by this way of thinking. In the Thomas Jefferson Bible, he's thrown out all of the miraculous events of Jesus, including the resurrection, which is huge. Um, yeah, kind of the whole basis of our faith. Uh, Following the Enlightenment, though, the late 1800s, the 1900s, were marked by a time of modernism, which was a move to center on man's ability to create for himself and to make things new. Uh, modernists supported the ideas of philosophy being presented, but there was really never any objective way to determine what was true. It emphasized man's, reality, or man's ability to think outside the box, and really the box was God's word. And so it elevated man's reason. They would perhaps put their heads together to try to find what was truth, but there would never be an objective outcome of that truth. Following the modernists, as indicated by the name, were the postmodernists. And the postmodernists said, not only can objective truth not be found, but there is no objective truth. And really, if you think about it, one leads to the other. If by man's reason we can't truly arrive at the truth, then the logical next step would just to be to say, well, I guess there is no objective truth. Whatever's true to you doesn't have to be true to them. It doesn't have to be true to you. We can all have our own form of truth. Guys, do you see how ridiculous this is? It just doesn't even make sense. If we walk outside and I say the, the sky is blue and you say it's green and someone else says it's orange and someone else says it's purple, we're not all right. One of us is right and everyone else is wrong. We live in a world of objective truth. We live in a world of absolute truths. And yet, the postmodernists operated with this way of thinking. And really what it is, it's a, it's a pluralistic society. It's a society, postmodernism has led to a pluralistic society where no one religion is right, no religion is better than another, and what's the key virtue? Tolerance. Right? Tolerance. Guys, this is the world we live in today. I know we just zoom through church history, but this is the society that we live in today. Rather than turning to the word of God for objective truth, our society trusts in our own reasoning and they elevate tolerance and the individual's ability to think for themselves more than anything. Whatever man can conceive of on his own is true. So, I just want to comment on this for a moment. Uh, 
and I'll comment on this again at the end, but just raise your hand if you went to the Veritas Forum on Tuesday night. Okay, about 60%, 70%. Will man's reason ever lead us to the truth? No, it's not gonna. Modernism proved this. Modernism was the search for truth, and yet it wasn't found, and so... Now postmodernism is at the root. Man's reason will not arrive us at the truth. Why? Because we are corrupted by sin. Not just our bodies are corrupted by sin. Our minds, our ability to reason is corrupted by sin. In our sinfulness, we've been tainted and corrupted to the very core. Our minds, our passions, our reason have been corrupted. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Isaiah 64.6. Your most righteous deeds are filthy rags. We can go on and on and on and look at the state of the heart of man. What is it? Deceitfully wicked. There is nothing good in man. Instead, we have to put our faith in what God has revealed to us. God has given us objective truth to interject into our minds and allow us to think clearly, right? What is Romans 12? If you're in Romans, go to Romans 12 and look at verse 2. What does this say? Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? It happens by the word of God, right? We need objective truth projected into our lives. And so the society that began to infiltrate the church, and here's where we come full circle, way back in the 1700s, we're still living out the consequences of the Enlightenment. We're still living out the consequences of modernism and postmodernism. The world we live in pushes back to the direct and objective claims made in Scripture. And yet, what is the church's role in society? Well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that the church, as the household of God, is to be the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, we are to be the foundation that holds up the truth to the society. The church is to interject the truth into society, not to succumb to it. We must be living the truth and proclaiming it into the deceived hearts of our culture. And so in closing, I just, uh, yeah, this was a a 10,000 foot overview of church history. I've been fascinated by it. I hope you guys will be encouraged to go and dig into it more. Uh, There's many more men, many more events, many more heresies and reforms that we could look at. But with regards to what we have looked at, I want to draw a few implications. And the first would be this. Praise God for his faithfulness in building his church. In the Lord's sovereignty, he often works in light of man's faithfulness, but also he works in spite of man's sinfulness. And I believe this is one of the truest statements regarding church history. Along the way, there have been men who have stood up for what is right, and the Lord used them mightily. But things have been messy. There were also those who have tainted and corrupted the church. And yet, God is still working. He is still in control. Although it's been polluted with various forms of heresies, wrong teachings, there have always been the gathering of people together that call themselves the church. Those people that call Jesus Lord and Savior. There's always been those people. And so we see God has been faithful to build his church way back from Jesus' time until right now. Secondly, though, as an implication of, of looking at church history, look to the scripture and not man's traditions. 
or opinions for that matter. I titled this sermon, God's Faithfulness and Man's Sinfulness, A Glance at Church History, because this has been the case through the time of the church. Again, wrong theology, wrong ideologies, wrong practices have entered only to be reformed out at later points. Much of church history is really marked by doing that which is right in our own eyes, right? It's been man sticking to his own thoughts and traditions rather than the commandments of God, straying from the blueprint of God. Jesus inaugurated this beautiful bride that we looked at two weeks ago in Matthew 16 that we saw last week in Acts, and yet we are just continually messing it up through history. And so as a challenge to us, let go of traditions, let go of what we're comfortable with and return to Scripture. Look at what what Scripture says about salvation, about sanctification, about how to do church, about everything. Turn to Scripture for everything. And with respect, I say this, but honestly, guys, who cares how you were raised? Who cares if you were raised in this kind of church or that kind of church? Who cares if, oh, well, it worked. It worked this way. Or, oh, well, I felt good in this way. That just feels right. We need to let go of these preconceived ideas and turn to Scripture to see what does it say about church? What does the Bible say? That's what I want to know. What does the Bible say? And so... Look to the the scriptures to see how to do church well. And thirdly, you can trust, as an implication of church history, you can trust a Christ-centered church. I don't mean to say that the church or its leaders have ultimate authority. I don't mean to say that we just mindlessly and blindlessly follow anything that the church says. But if a church is following the biblical model given by God, and if its leaders are godly and seeking to obey Christ, then Christ is present there. He is in that church. He is the head of the church. Next week, we're going to look at marks of a biblical church from Scripture. I hope you'll join us. But as an immediately, immediate application from church history, I hope we see that God has been and will continue to fulfill his promise to build his church. He's doing that in our midst. Sometimes in light of man's faithfulness, sometimes in spite of our sinfulness, God is at work. And so be a part of what God's doing. Trust a Christ-centered church and be involved in making new church history. It's a beautiful thing that brings joy to us and glory to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. We pray, God, that if there are any in here who don't know you, uh, that they would turn to you, that they would turn to your son as both Lord and Savior. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.